Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you all. It's good to be here. Um, part of our goal with this Sunday, especially if you've been with us throughout Advent, um, in Advent, a lot of times we try to uh, like really get into the, the formal nature of like a traditional worship service, but um, we've got a Christmas Eve service that's candlelight and you know quiet and somber, and we'll be like really res- like really reverent coming up on uh, this weekend. And so we thought like let's not do that today. Let's um, let's have fun. And um, yeah, and I'm glad. I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to be doing all that. This the hope this morning is that it's, um, is that it's fun, and you know, of course, the reason we're here is because we're wrapping up. Advent, which is a season of waiting, so not a season where we think about fun um, all that often. And, and the way I want to start this morning is I want to ask, okay, so if Advent is a season of waiting, what is it a season of waiting for? What is it a season of waiting for? And the answer, of course, is that, you know, you guys know we're waiting for Jesus, both in the sense that this coming Saturday night at that reverent and candlelit and like very seasonally appropriate service, we're going to remember Jesus's arrival 20 centuries ago when he was born to the lowly at a time of great injustice for the purpose of redeeming the world. And then as we talked about for the last month, we're also waiting for that work that began 20 centuries ago to be completed. We're waiting for our own redemption Injustice at a moment that's somewhere still off in front of us. And all of this is worth pausing to contemplate at this moment in our calendar each year. It's worth doing this. And my hope is that over the last few weeks and in the days to come, that this season has been meaningful for you and that it will be more meaningful yet. But as we wait on these things, as we wait on those promises of redemption and justice, What I want us to consider today is the manner of our waiting. What is the mood of our waiting? What is the feeling of it? Because I think that the direct answer isn't an obvious one, and and the direct answer, too, bears contemplation. Now, there are no surprises here this morning. You can see on your program, this is the downside to, like, giving you all of the things that we're going to do in front of you. Like, you know that I'm here to talk about peace, that that's the direct answer to the question about our mood as we wait. We're encouraged to wait peacefully. But what I got wondering about this week is, has that ever been your experience with waiting? Have you ever waited peacefully for anything? In our house right now, at the Kameisho house, things are in a state of like barely contained chaos that Mary and I have been talking about for weeks now. Everybody's on edge. The kids are nipping at each other and fighting about everything. Our dog is shedding all over the place for like some reason in the middle of winter. Mary and I are scrambling to get every gift um, and to get everything done on time. This is our first Christmas season where Mary has been working full time and like we're feeling, we're feeling the crunch of, of her working full time and the stress that's putting on us. Everything is you know, crazy. And at the same time, here at our church, we're in a fair amount of turmoil at the moment as well. I'm spending quite a lot of time each week not buying Christmas presents or managing my children, but like talking with insurance adjusters and digging through old receipts and trying to figure out, you know, what that little box that I've never used before, but I remember was down on the bottom of the soundboard and maybe worth like $20,000 or something, like what it was for, what it's called. Things in our life, what I'm saying is that things in our life right now are by no stretch peaceful. Christmas is coming, and we're excited for it, but it's questionable right now whether we're ready for the day or whether we're just ready for the day to be over. 
So the question is, have you had a similar experience? You know the chaos of waiting. I've never been pregnant, but I imagine the experience in pregnancy is much the same. There's this joy on the horizon, right? But there's not actually all that much peace on the way to it. And it seems significant to me that pregnancies of Mary with Jesus, of the world with its Messiah, are the central metaphors of the season. We're waiting, yes, we're waiting, but are we waiting peacefully? And I'll take this one more step. Is God waiting peacefully? Hope, joy, love. I know God is an expert in all of these things, but peace? Is God an expert in peace? What does the God we meet in Scripture know about peace? I ask that question genuinely, not just trying to be heretical or irreverent. Where is peace? What is peace? We've been teaching through the lectionary in this series. And today we've been given these two passages to connect. They're in your program, Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, and Matthew 3, 1 through 12. And if you've skimmed them already, you know that they both talk about peace. But what do they teach about it? What do they teach about it? I think Isaiah is a particularly tough case. I'll read it for us and we can talk it through. Isaiah writes, A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge for the poor and decide with equity for the oppressed of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion will feed together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. It will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It turns out we've talked a lot about Isaiah over the last few weeks. His his words show up a lot in the Christmas story. And I think this passage reflects something that we've talked about this month, which is that in the context of his life, there was very little peace. Isaiah was the prophet to a series of kings in the southern kingdom of Israel during a time of intense conflict. He witnessed the destruction of their neighbors to the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, as well as a number of sieges around his own hometown in Jerusalem. And while he was experiencing all that conflict geopolitically, he also saw the kings that he worked for sell out, first to the Assyrians and then to the Egyptians who threatened them later from the south. And in the midst of all of this sort of chaos, this geopolitical tension, He spoke frequently of what God would ultimately do to redeem and to restore his people. But he also spoke frequently about the judgment that his people were going to have to face before that deliverance ever came to them. Although Isaiah experienced very little peace, 
it's notable that he talked often of it. But the peace that he talks about doesn't look like what we might expect. As I was reading there, what most struck me were the animals. You guys with me on the animal? Finally, you're like, there's a lot of murdering there before that, but the animals feel good. So we get to the animals. The wolves with the lambs, the lions eating straw. All that stuff, I don't know about you, but as I read it, that stuff feels unnatural to me. It is unnatural, right? Peaceful or not, promises of safety or not, I would still prefer my children not to like play with snakes like in the yard. It's not natural, but what makes it possible? The answer Isaiah gives is that the peace that everyone's experiencing here is not a product of a cessation of hostilities. That's a truce, right? And truces can be broken. Instead, Isaiah's peace is the product of those last verses where he writes, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Knowledge in the ancient world is this way, not of talking about the things we know, but of talking about relationships. To know in the ancient world is to be intimately and wholly connected to somebody, to understand their thoughts, to see them as one with yourself. It's a word that frequently is tied to marriage in Old Testament writing, right? To see somebody as one with yourself. So what I think is happening here, like the wolf doesn't lay down with the lamb because God says so. The wolf doesn't lay down with the lamb because he's no longer hungry. The wolf lays down with the lamb because the lamb is no longer his food. In the knowledge of the Lord, the lamb has become God's beloved to the wolf. When we know God as we are already known by God, what happens is we begin to see his creation through his eyes. We will understand his love for the things that he's made and feel that love for ourselves. And then when that happens, we can share his will for the things that he's made in the world. And his will is for those things to reflect his own nature. The wolf doesn't eat the lamb because the wolf sees the lamb for what the lamb is. So what does God know about peace then? This God who also is responsible for those verses that come before the cute animals there in Isaiah. I think what God knows about peace is that peace is impossible without empathy. It's impossible without empathy. He writes, Isaiah writes, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge for the poor and decide with equity for the oppressed of the earth. I can't know peace, in other words, if I am locked in my own point of view. What is the first thing that a mother does when her baby is born? Does she hold the baby and then like scold it for causing her so much pain? I mean, it's probably happened, if we're honest, but not usually... I don't, if you're one of those mothers, I don't want you to feel judged in this situation is what I'm saying. But I think typically what we don't hear is a mother like give birth and then say, why didn't you come faster? What's wrong with you? Why were you so difficult? No, no. Mothers say from their heart, for you I have suffered and I would suffer again. I think this rings true to me. It rings true to my house right now. That if only my children could see each other's point of view 
If only the post office knew how quickly I needed this package that I'm waiting on. If only some thief had thought about how the supply chain impacts trailer production. <laughs> but, but that gets us to the obstacle, right? Am I thinking, am I thinking of what leads a person to steal? Am I thinking of the mountains of packages that are already at the post office going somewhere else? Or the sheer exhaustion of just being a child waiting for Christmas? Of course I'm not. My empathy says, you go first, and then I will consider your perspective. But that's not how God's empathy works. And without God's empathy, we can't know real peace. We can only know truces. I want us to look at that Matthew passage now. And when it comes to peace, this is a strange one too. To set the stage here, Matthew's gospel is the gospel that's most concerned with emphasizing the continuing importance of Jewish beliefs within an early church that is becoming increasingly more Gentile in its composition. So he highlights prophets like Isaiah in his gospel in order to help connect the dots between this ancient story of Israel and Jesus' place as the Messiah. Now that doesn't mean, even though he's, you might think of this in shorthand as like the most Jewish of the gospels, that doesn't mean that Matthew is particularly kind to the temple leaders. But it does mean that he wants Christians in the first century to see the role that they are playing in this larger story of Israel's judgment, the judgment Isaiah was talking about, and also to see their place in that promise of a coming redemption. So in this particular passage, what Matthew's describing is he's describing John the Baptist, who has gone down to the river and is calling the Jews of Jerusalem to come to him and to repent and to be sort of baptized there in the river in anticipation of the Messiah's arrival. And Matthew writes this, he writes, In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The lectionary is like really putting us to the ringer this week, isn't it? Like, not very peaceful either. John's message is a call to repentance, or, or to kind of define that for us, an acknowledgement and grief over our past mistakes. That's a definition you might hold on to. Repentance is this acknowledgement and grief over past mistakes. And John has drawn a crowd, and he seems to be kind of happily baptizing people in the river until this group of leaders from the temple arrive to check in on him. And we're, the passage implies that like, they're not there for sort of genuine or personal reasons. They're there to kind of see what the ruckus is all about. And as soon as he sees these leaders, he stops what he's doing, and he calls out to them, you brood of vipers, which pretty good insult, honestly. But... It's a bold, I think it's undeniably a bold and like an unkind thing for somebody to say. 
But what's he getting at? Like, why does he call them that? Well, what he says sticks out to me. He says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And in this verse, bear fruit worthy of repentance. For even now the axe is at the root of the tree. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. I thought on this for a long time this week. I checked a bunch of translations to see if the words flipped around in some way. Because I was like, I don't know that this makes sense. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. And all I can figure is that the question we're supposed to be asking is, what kind of fruit does repentance produce? What kind of fruit? Why is John calling people to repent in the first place? What does any of this have to do with Jesus' arrival? Is Jesus the axe? That seems troubling. I think, after reflecting on it for a bit, that the core issue that Matthew has with the Pharisees is their apparent certainty about the faith. We've talked about this a couple of times this year. There's certainty about the faith. They've heard people claim to be the Messiah before. And it's only caused trouble in the past. And at the same time, I think from the Pharisees and Sadducees' perspective, things in Jerusalem are actually going like pretty well at this time in the first century. The temple that they use for all of their work, everything, has been rebuilt by Rome. Ceremonial practices, like the religious practices of Judaism, are permitted there. There's money, it would seem, to support them in all of their ministry. There's this truce in Jerusalem at the time with their Roman occupiers. There's that word again, right? There's this truce. So there's this time that Jesus appears in that is a moment of like relative stability, in, at least in the temple and among the Pharisees. So it might be worth asking if you are one of those Pharisees, like what is there to repent of? What deliverance do you really need from God when things are mostly okay? All of this, I think, feeds a sense that what God wants from them, this is what they believe, that what God, what God wants from them is to more or less kind of like just keep on trucking, like as leaders in Jerusalem. And there's this sense here that the stability of their moment has insulated them from the everyday hardships of the people that are all around them. Because although things are okay for the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're not okay for everybody in the city. And so I think there's this sense that their stability has numbed them to God's empathy with us. I'll say that again. It's numbed them to God's empathy with us. And his desire, God's desire, not just for temporary cessations of hostilities in the world, but for real peace. The kind of peace that only happens when the wolf doesn't see the lamb as food anymore. And that numbness and that insulation created by their certainty in their position and in their faith turns out to be anti-God because God is never numb or insulated from the pain of his people. If we don't hurt for our neighbors, if we don't hurt for our neighbors, we need to repent. Because God does. We've become too isolated. And that means, I think, that the fruit of repentance is concern. May our eyes see what God's eyes see. May our hearts feel what God's heart feels. That's the fruit that comes from repentance. The Pharisees, though, are us all too often. The Pharisees are me, I am them. And the reason, I think, is because 
I'm prone to truces. I mistake peace for an absence of trouble. It sounds strange to say that moments of disruption in my life are really opportunities to repent. But the times when things are hard are the times when we can repent. But I think that may actually be true. Right now, as my routines have been wrecked up by like all the things happening in life, I feel often like, woe is me. But in this moment of disruption, I've been given a chance to repent because the insulation that was covering me, that was surrounding me and numbing me to the world in which I live has fallen away. Am I sorry for being indifferent? Should I be? What would change look like? I think what we're challenged to do here is to look around. To look around. What is my wife Meredith going through right now? What are my kids going through at school? What are my kids going through with their friends? Something I never ask. Why is my neighbor's car always parked so crookedly in her spot so that it blocks mine and I can't get into my parking space? I get mad about it. Have I ever bothered to wonder why she's feeling so rushed? Who's the owner of that store that just closed right before the holidays? Who's living in that tent just off the highway in the patch woods? I think repentance is this shift of attention and priorities from mine to God's. So the question we started with is, what does God know about peace? I think God also knows that it's not possible without repentance. We have to acknowledge and grieve our tendency to choose truces. Our tendency to accept a status quo which is good enough for us, but which is not good enough for everyone. And the goal of repentance, when we acknowledge this, it's not to feel terrible. The goal of repentance is to open ourselves up to this full breadth and scale and scope of God's love for the world. That's what happens when we repent. We open ourselves up to the possibility of seeing the world the way God sees it. But we can't do that without first admitting that we're choosing a smaller view all the time. Every truce that we accept is this admission that we think there's only so much God can do here. And this is good enough. Like, it's fine. So the question really is, what would happen if we had more hope, if we had higher expectations? And I think that if we had higher expectations, we might find ourselves stirred more frequently to action. Let me share an illustration with you that more than a few of you are probably sick of hearing from me. I read it in a book like a year ago and now I use it like constantly. So to like half of the room, my apologies. All right, here's the illustration. I forgot that like particularly Meredith and Claire were gonna be here and they've heard this so many times. I feel like embarrassed. Okay. Imagine you're in a canoe. You're in a canoe with another person and you're in the middle of a lake you pulled the paddles in, and you're just kind of sitting in this canoe, rocking a bit in the water. You can close your eyes if you want to. Like, if you're a visualizer, this is a moment. Like, get yourself there. All right, now imagine that the person you're with and the other end of the canoe sees something on the shore, and they get really excited about it. 
And they start to stand up in the boat and they're like pointing wildly over the side, like, look, look, look. Like what's happening in your canoe right now? Are you there? What's going on? Chaos, right? The boat's rocking. You're probably a little bit afraid. Maybe you brace yourself like in it. Maybe you try to steady the canoe. Now imagine that the person you're with like really starts to lean out. Like not just like pointing, but they're like really leaning. Look, look, look. What are you going to do? My guess is this. You're not looking. In fact, you're probably going to start leaning out the other side of the canoe. And you're going to do that for this very logical reason that if you don't, you're going to capsize, right? The more they lean one way, the more you have to lean out the other. Now, this illustration has come to mean a lot to me when I think about how relationships and how families work. When one person acts out, in order to keep the boat from tipping, everybody else tends to act in the opposite way. In my own home, I see this with my kids all the time. When one kid is having tantrums, suddenly the other children are all like angels. Like they can't, they're perfect. It doesn't matter who's who in the scenario. Whoever's having a tantrum, the other kids freak out and they're like, I've, been, I've never made a mistake in my life, mom and dad. What would you like? Can I bring you a coffee? Like, <laughs> when one of them gets a bad grade at school and is upset, I, can, I, could pro- I would bet $100 on it that within 24 hours, somebody else is going to be like, look at this A-plus I got, dad, like on my last quiz. They never show me their grades. But they will if somebody else is like hanging out a different side of the canoe. But here's, here's the problem. When the kid having the tantrum Right, The one acting out to start with sees their sibling acting in the other way, acting like an angel. It doesn't correct their behavior. It infuriates them, right? It amplifies their behavior because now they have to lean even further out of their side of the canoe or the whole thing's going to tip over. And what's needed is for everybody to just settle back down into the boat at the same time. Now, what does this have to do with... God and what God knows about peace. We've talked about two things today. We've talked about empathy or seeing somebody else's perspective. And we've talked about repentance, which is admitting our own insensitivity to God's concerns. Peace, I think, is what happens when we do both of these things. When we show empathy, when we repent. We have to see that the other person is not our enemy. We have to admit despite all the A pluses, that we're not the hero. We don't try to correct their behavior. What we do is we trust God that things will be okay if we correct our own. We move towards the center of the boat, which means moving towards the other person. And we hold space for the possibility that they will move towards us in response. Nobody's the wolf. Nobody's the lamb. Nobody's anybody else's food. We're all children of a God who loves us and who's promised to restore us. And we anchor ourselves in that trust and in that hope. It's worth asking when we think about that canoe, we think about how hard it would be to be the first person to move towards the middle of the boat. It's worth asking ourselves this Sunday of any Sunday, is this not what that happened on that first Christmas morning? Is this not a moment where God chooses not to see us as his enemies anymore? 
He chooses to settle down in the bottom of the boat with us. He chooses empathy. And it might sound strange to talk about God's hope, but I think that that is actually what the story of that first Christmas encourages. God's hope is that we will stop leaning out of the other side and that we will come into the middle to join him. That we will choose to repent of our single-mindedness, like leaning out, look, look, look. And that instead we'll choose to be with him as he has already chosen to be with us. His choice means, and this is important, the choice God's already made means it is totally possible for us to tip over the canoe. The axe is even now at the root of the tree. But nonetheless, he's gone first, as he always will. So this week, my invitation is that you will join me in trying to look around a bit more over the next six days. Trying to empathize with others, to see where and why they're leaning in the ways that they are. Trying to acknowledge and repent of my contentment with the status quo. In other words, trying to see and hear and feel and act in the ways that God has already acted. And I think if we do this, the miracle of Christ's birth can be seen for what it actually is, which is evidence of God's radical commitment to us. We can see a path to peace, first heading in and then moving out from the manger. We can sit with him. We can settle with him. And the images of a savior nestled in the straw can begin to mean just that to us. Settling, centering. He's settled there among us. He's already drawn near for our sake. And the question is, how are we going to respond to the commitment that he's already shown? How do you respond to a baby in a manger? To that love? Are we drawn near to it too? Could we be drawn near to it? And as we settle there in the boat with our God, do we find something that other people need too? Are we inspired then to be what the Bible asks us to be, which are people of peace? Similarly willing to go first in our acts of repentance, in our empathy, and our willingness to draw near to someone else. Like being that kind of person is what I want for Christmas or That's not true, right? But it's what I should want. May God banish my fears and my doubts. May all of us grow not in our certainty, but in our trust and our gratitude for the reality of the God who loves first, who sees us as worth loving at this moment, at every moment. As we head into this week, can we hold space in us for hope, which is how we started four weeks ago. Can we hold space for hope? Because there's every reason for it. There's every reason.